Hi there, and welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that um, has returned to seeking out uh, middle ground or exposing wellness trends. <laughs> um, welcome to season two. Uh, if you've, we finally wrapped up our summer into fall series. And so we're kind of back with new, fresh, regularly scheduled programming. Um, huge thank you to everyone who's journeyed through our first season with us. We have some exciting things we're kind of working on for this next season. So, you know, always, if you have ideas or things you want us to cover, don't hesitate to reach out to either of us on Instagram. Yes, I am finally back after a three month hiatus from social media. <laughs> and I don't think I said it, but my name is Annika Buckle. <laughs> Love it. My name is Jenny Omani, and we, at the very beginning, had our friend Lee recording with us, and our hopes is that she's going to record with us again. She's wrapping up her master's degree, and um, her bandwidth is, like all of our bandwidth, it's only so big. <laughs> and so she's in academia right now, um, maximizing her bandwidth, and we talk to her literally every day, just not... Uh, via podcast format. So we're really hoping she's going to come back and she's going to have her master's in, oh, is it count? She's going to be a therapist. So I don't know if it's a counseling psychology master's, if it's a, like a therapy, something of that genre, she will be a clinical counselor when she's done. So um, we're actually really hoping she's going to come back. She has just so much value uh, from the lens that she comes from as an educator of decades with ex decades of experience and, you know, as a therapist. So if you are enjoying this podcast, we'd really love for you to hop onto your listening platform of choice, pop in a five-star review. And honestly, what we would love to see more than anything right now um, are shares. That yes. is hard because we do not have a dedicated Instagram. We have reserved a handle. We talk about it a lot. We also have our bandwidth <laughs> is that we is. have. <laughs> and so... I don't know. Stand by. We'll see what we can do. But if you could just, everybody can link now. So you can hop in and link an episode. And that would be so much appreciated. We okay, what are we going to talk about today? So um, where our summer series was fun, today we're going to take a bit of a dark turn. Um, and before we even start talking about today's topic, I just kind of want to open with a content warning and an acknowledgement. Today we're going to be talking about the history of Canada's food guide. But we're also going to be talking about the abuse, neglect, and systemic racism toward Indigenous people, children specifically in Canada. So a lot of this is going to be pretty heavy and pretty dark. So if you continue to listen, just look after yourself. This is a topic that we came across in our summer series, looking at the history of wellness trends in the 1940s. So while on its surface, talking about Canada's food guide might appear problematic for several reasons, it's even worse than you think. Coming up this week in Canada on September 30th, is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This day honors children who never returned home and survivors of residential schools, as well as their families and communities. September 30th was traditionally Orange Shirt Day, um, which was a grassroots campaign founded by Phyllis Webstad that grew out of her own experiences and the experiences of other residential school survivors. I know most of our Canadian friends already know this, but for those of you listening from other places, this date also coincides with the confirmed finding in 2021 of mass graves of Indigenous children, both in Kamloops here in British Columbia and in Regina. If you're listening from elsewhere, I encourage you to check out the links in the show notes for more information on this previously hidden, pretty dark part of Canadian history. Although I will admit it might be a little jarring after talking about like 
hilarious trends like the wine and eggs diet or juice cleanses <laughs> to jump into this with the timing it felt important to do this topic this week so i want to call out again this is a very massive topic and as two you know white settlers on unceded land there will be only so far we can go with this again in the show notes i've included as many resources as i can from indigenous communities and leaders so i really want to stress that this will not be exhaustive and that we're doing our best to treat this with the respect and reflection that it deserves. Okay, let's go. Um, so it was hard for me to pick a place to start this story today because we need to give some context for the history of colonialism in Canada to understand the story of how the food guide came to be. So do we start 130,000 years ago with the first migration of people in North America? Do we start in 1604 with the first European settlement north of Florida by French explorers? All of these are great places, but I decided to start with a very brief summary of the Indian Act of 1876. While the Act could be its own episode, actually probably its own podcast, I just want to summarize a few of the parts that are relevant to our topic today. If you're looking for an excellent and very thorough summary, I highly suggest the book 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, linked in the show notes. Um, also, as a side note, while I'll be using the term Indigenous and First Nations to describe Canada's first people, when I'm referring to historical documents, the term Indian is used. So where it's relevant, I will use that language with the disclaimer that it is outdated and kind of racist. We also want to be mindful of trying to rewrite history, especially when it's messy. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. You don't want to make it sound, you know, more culturally appropriate than it is. <laughs> Because that actually doesn't help anything. That right. actually is counter. Yeah. <laughs> Not your words, their words. Totally. Totally. You know better, it feels, you do better. Right. It feels weird, but I mean, history is supposed to make us feel weird, right? So. Actually, yes. That's a really good point. Um, I also just want to call out a huge part of the research for this episode has come from the excellent journal articles written by Ian Mosby that I will also link in the notes. He was one of the first to kind of make these connections and his work is hard to read but really important so many of the details the first-hand accounts especially of what the elderly and children were experiencing are horrifying and knowing it was intentional government policy well we'll get there but read at your own risk <laughs> so the indian act by design dismantled indigenous systems of governance banned the formation of political organizations and banned most cultural practices it restricted movement by disallowing First Nations to leave reserves without permission from an Indian agent and introduced residential schools. It also legally deemed First Nations people with Indian status as wards of the state. That is particularly relevant to what we're going to talk about today because this created the policy basis for the studies that were the basis of the Canada Food Guide. You know, again, this is a time where wards of the state didn't have a lot of say in... Um, whether they were used in experiments or not, as we've touched on before. Um, Are there any other examples of wards of the state from the time? Or did they like make up that term? Children in whatever was the precursor to the foster system, orphanages probably at the time, or people who had been, you know, checked into um, institutions for, you know, various medical or um, mental issues would be my guess. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about what was going on in Canada in the early 1940s. Jenny, any uh, crucial context in this decade worth mentioning? <laughs> the 1940s? <laughs> that little tiny war that happened across just, the whole world? Just a teeny <laughs> tiny war. Um, Hitler went into Poland and the rest, well, technically 1939, but yeah. 
Um, right. So generally, Canadians during this time were in a time of food shortage, first with the Depression of the 30s and then with war rations. Um, but the economy and the war weren't the primary reasons that First Nations communities were experiencing hunger and malnutrition. In fact, especially in residential schools, even Indian Affairs employees had been warning of widespread starvation for decades prior to this. Going back to what we talked about at the beginning, this starvation was a huge reason for the mass graves of Indigenous children around residential schools all across Canada. Um, some estimates are that as many as 50% of the children in these schools died, either on site or immediately on discharge. Hunger and malnutrition also extended well beyond the doors of this institutional schools, of course, in part due to the decline of game and local plant life due to overhunting and the expansion of urban and rural settler populations. But those are pretty gory numbers. You also have a group of people that traditionally um, like were migrated hmm. throughout the seasons, right? So mm -hmm. there's no food shortage when you move where the food is. Right. Right. But, Over the course of the year. But when you're confined to the boundaries of the place that you literally are have to check in and out of with an officer. Right. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, you know, you just snapped your fingers. It really feels like that in a lot of ways, looking at kind of how quickly things changed um, and how for a very long time in a lot, especially a lot of on reserve communities, ended up really stuck in between this. Um, you know, we have had our traditional ways taken away from us, but we haven't been given anything in place. So you mm, end up yeah. with kind of in this nothing in the middle, you know, and literally nothing when we're talking about food, but, you know, culturally nothing, I think, in a lot of ways, too. Um, again, when you're confined to literally, you know, needing a piece of paper from a government official to be able to move, I think the impacts of that can't be understated. Yeah. And it sounds like it was a very much a slow generational goal to get rid of those cultural norms, right? Because the indoctrination happened in the residential school system. So until mm -hmm. those kids presumably grew up and then were supposed to, I guess, teach the new standards to the next generation, but not even because they just took that generation and put them in the residential school right. system too. Yeah. So it's almost worse than just having this nothing in between. It's right, like, it's, right. It's, it's more active violence against communities. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, all of this context to say in 1942, a team of scientific and medical researchers traveled to a number of First Nations communities, or initially in northern Manitoba, to, quote, study the state of nutrition of the Indian by newly developed medical procedures. And what they saw when they arrived was shocking to them. Keep in mind, this isn't even residential schools yet. This is just on reserve Indigenous people. Um, I'm going to put this in the chat. Norway House and Cross Lake were two of the communities in northern Manitoba that they visited for context. Okay. So it says, quote, at both Norway House and Cross Lake, they reported that Quote, while most of the people were going about trying to make a living, they were really sick enough to be in bed under treatment and that if they were white people, they would be in bed and demanding care and medical attention, end quote. Following a visit to the homes of some of the elderly residents of Norway House at the request of the chief and council, moreover, researchers found that conditions that, quote, conditions were deplorable where the old people were almost starved and were plainly not getting enough food to enable them to much more than keep alive, end quote. Okay. Yeah. 
So, I mean, keeping in mind it's 1942, we have enough medical knowledge at this point to understand the impact of this. So in their official reports, when they draw connection, they draw connections between this and the poor health of a lot of these communities at the time. Mm -hmm. um, for example, a tuberculosis death rate of 1,400 per 10,000 compared to 27 for the non-Aboriginal population of Manitoba, so 1,400 versus 27. An infant mortality rate eight times the rest of Canada. They conclude that this could at least be partly to... They conclude that this could at least partly explain the, quote, Indian problem, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, and these were their findings. So again, this kind of comes back to this idea of like... Well, I'll let you read it, Jenny. It is not unlikely that many characteristics such as shiftlessness, indolence, improvidence, and inertia, so long regarded as inherent or hereditary traits in the Indian race may, at the root, be really the manifestations of mal malnutrition. Furthermore, it is highly probable that their great susceptibility to many diseases, paramount among which is tuberculosis, may be directly attributable to their high degree of malnutrition arising from lack of proper foods. I mean, I read this and I see the exact same racism I witnessed in the 1980s and 1990s growing up in a tiny town with a huge First Nations community. It's this stereotype of the, you know, quote unquote, lazy Indian, right? Mm -hmm. And even in, you know, 1942, they're recognizing that th this is a connection that can be made. And this is in, you know, very clearly written in government documents. And yet no action is taken. Again, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier, right? It's like you it's take like all the of them. you take the traditional ways away and you replace it with nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So um let's talk about this phrase, the quote, the Indian problem. You may have heard this term before, but it was a term that really encapsulated the government approach to dealing with indigenous people. The term itself was coined by Duncan Scott, uh noted uh a shining figure of history who oversaw the operation and expansion of residential schools in the early part of the 20th century. Oh, eh. <laughs> um, this exact quote is attributed to him somewhere between 1910 and 1920, depending on how you read the archives. But this is the context within which these researchers are going into these communities and the settler Canadian community at a whole, I think really views these communities quote i want to get rid of the indian problem i do not think as a matter of fact that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are unable to stand alone our objective is to continue until there is not a single indian in canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no indian question and no indian department wow was this at the same time as they were doing, was this happening in parallel with the states? Because I know they had residential schools in the states too. I kind of assumed they just happened sort of side by side. I think to some degree, I know, you know, a huge part of what happened in the US was just complete obliteration of communities. So mm -hmm. they didn't have the same percentage of the population that was you know still indigenous that we had in Canada mm. partly due to the size of our country um mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of areas that still to this day are you know relatively wild and untapped even in mm -hmm. you know yeah. areas that are highly populated so um they definitely didn't have a better approach than we did <laughs> no 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 I was just wondering if it was 
did I was just curious if it was like, oh, look what they're doing in the States. Andrew Jackson, great idea. <laughs> what noted uh, hero of the people, Andrew Jackson. Um so, I mean, it's particularly hard to read the accounts of the conversations that the research yeah. team had with the chiefs of these communities they were going to who were advocating for their own literally starving communities while also saying things like, because of the war, they knew Canada was, quote, carrying a heavy burden already. And, quote, if taking away the treaty rations will help in winning the war, then we are satisfied. Ugh. Also, while shipping a bunch of men out to fight, I assume, too. Right. I mean, keep in mind, this was a government right? that wouldn't even give them veterans benefits if they served in the military overseas. Totally. So. And they absolutely served in the military. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's move into specifically the nutrition experiments in the residential schools. While they weren't the first of these kind of quote unquote nutritional studies, they were some of the biggest. And for the purposes of the history of the food guide, I think this is the part worth focusing on today. So in the 1940s, as we talked about in our history episode this summer, nutrition science was still a very new area of study. There was a lot that just wasn't known about vitamins and minerals and their importance. I mean, Let's be real. There's still a lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> um, uh, particularly because now we're willing to recognize how unethical it is to test nutrition theory on humans. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the very first set of what was called at the time Canada's official food rules was released in 1942. I love that they were rules. I know. They really, <laughs> they really softened up over the years. Like just no, just no guidelines. And no mints and rules i wonder how to food laws um i'll link this in the notes as well okay so it is canada's official food rules these are the health protective foods oh gosh that's like grifty terminology now <laughs> isn't it funny mm, these are supportive okay so these are health protective foods be sure you eat them every day in at least these amounts use more if you can okay so these are our minimum rules for what we're gonna eat okay milk adults half a pint children more than one pint and some cheese as available in all in all caps i think that's in my all capitals part. yeah like the cheese but it's because they put oh yeah but the other things aren't okay whatever yeah. cheese is very important. cheese that's how i feel about cheese too <laughs> fruits one serving of tomatoes daily. I know tomatoes a fruit, but is that I the know. first fruit that I comes know. to mind? I know. Mm. Okay. One serving of tomatoes daily or of a citrus fruit or of tomato or citrus fruit juices and one serving of other fruits, fresh, canned, or dried. Vegetables, in addition to potatoes, of which you need one serving daily. Two servings daily of vegetables, preferred leafy greens or yellow and frequently raw. Okay, there. Cereals and bread, one serving of whole grain cereal and four to six slices of Canada approved bread, brown or white. Oh, I'm curious about that six little no. slices of bread every day, minimum six. Well, it's probably because that was something that they had right. access to. <laughs> They're like, uh, the rule is eat this one thing that we have a lot of uh, meat, fish, etc. One serving a day of meat, fish, or meat substitutes, liver, heart, or kidney once a week. Eggs, at least three or four eggs weekly. Eat these foods first, then add these and other foods you wish. Some source of vitamin D, such as fish liver oils, is essential for children and may be advisable for adults. Oh, so we knew vitamin D was important then. Yes. I also want to highlight that there were two uh, more versions of this issued in quick succession. Um, 
1944 and again in 1949, I think this highlights how quickly things were changing, you know, not only because of the war, obviously, you know, to kind of your point, things are going to shift as things are available differently. Um, Mm -hmm. But also just this field of study was expanding so quickly. The Nutrition Services Division of the Department of Pensions and National Health, a very long name to call the government agency taxed with nutritional studies. Oh, you know, it was abbreviated and no one knew it by its full name anyways. NSDDPNH. Which they probably were like, NISTA. Or you know what I mean? Like, you're like, what? Um, so this was created in 1941 under Dr. Lionel Bradley Pett. We're going to talk about Pett a lot today. He was the primary author of Canada's official food rules and had spent a good part of his career interested in looking at specific nutritional needs. So when the Indian Affairs Branch Superintendent of Medical Services, Dr. Percy Moore, we'll talk about him again also, approached him about what they were seeing in these First Nations communities in northern Manitoba, they saw an opportunity that they then carried over into what they implemented at some residential schools. So the first investigations of nutrition at residential schools in a larger scale began in 1944 with the assistance of the Canadian Red Cross. Very interesting. And then expanded after the war. Over the course of a few hours or an entire day, the investigator would interview staff and examine everything from the menus being served to the food purchase ledgers, the conditions of the kitchen and food storage facilities, the food service area, and where they existed agricultural production facilities. Most importantly, the reports assess the daily value of the students' meals against the recommendations found in Canada's food rules. Can you guess, Jenny, what they found? Uh, that the kitchens were dirty. For sure. That they were probably getting like some some horrific percentage of the rules. Like, like they received one one hundredth of the recommended rules and all they got was the bread and it probably wasn't even bread form it was like some sort of like gruel dry flour so yeah investigations showed overwhelmingly poor conditions in schools this is a direct quote the food provided typically failed to meet the government's own basic nutritional standards in many schools items such as meat fruits and vegetable were rare and i guarantee you they were rancid a lot of the time too do you know what i mean like they're Mm -hmm. not getting yeah no it's disgusting Yeah. So we know that the depression in the war meant significant cutbacks to everything everywhere. But let's remember that these schools were mandatory and were, I mean, essentially boarding schools, right? This wasn't a choice that Indigenous communities, you know, chose to send their kids to and they could just choose not to. In 1920, under the Indian Act, it became mandatory for every Indigenous child to attend a residential school and illegal for them to attend any other educational institution. These children, again, coming back to this idea they were legally considered wards of the state these legally mandated schools i just have to keep saying this because it this is the one of the most crucial pieces in this i think had such severe cutbacks that by 1947 pet our dear friend pet estimated that the per capita grant provided for food in most schools was less than half of what was required to maintain a balanced diet i mean i'm not even surprised so what did dr pet do certainly didn't increase food grants immediately no in fact just launched further investigations clearly the most effective thing to do in the moment that's like such a government tactic in so many areas 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like not let's, not let's in isolation look at to some this. More studies. I don't know. Mm, yeah, we should probably get Are a bit more sure? information. Yeah. yeah. So this is from uh, Mosby's uh, first uh, article study. Without necessary changes to the per capita funding formula for the schools, there was little likelihood that the students' nutritional status would improve in any meaningful way. This meant that the schools had become, through decades of neglect by Indian Affairs, a possible laboratory for studying human requirements for a range of nutrients, as well as the effects of dietary interventions on a group of malnourished children. Jesus. Right. So by 1948, with support from the Department of Indian Affairs, PET began a series of five-year experiments on the effects of different nutritional interventions into the diets of close to 1,000 students in residential schools all the way from BC to Nova Scotia. I'm not going to go into too much detail on why each of the six schools was chosen or the specific interventions or lack thereof that were done at each level, but I will summarize it as best I can. And I'm going to use um, any, one of the schools as an example. So they were chosen specifically because they were already shown to be significantly lacking in key nutritional areas. Students particularly were lacking vitamins A, B, and C, as well as iodine. Each school then, depending on the you know mix of how lacking they were in those vitamins, was given a specific intervention, either to all of the students or just half of the students, to assess impact. One of the six schools, nothing was changed whatsoever um, so that that could be considered the control school. Except for it's not a control. Right. That's not how controls work. Right. Right. Yeah. That's not a control. Nope. So just wait. <laughs> you want to get riled up this about just like their the, concept of control. Just wait. <laughs> the mm, Kate, go. go. So I'm going to give you an example and then kind of the knock on effect. Um, so this is from the Alberni school in Port Alberni here in British Columbia. These children had been determined to have the highest riboflavin deficiency of all of the schools they looked at. So Pat decided to test the impact of tripling the children's milk intake from its existing serving of eight ounces per day. I will just take a minute to highlight this is less than half of the quantity recommended in Canada's food rules, a document that Pat created, but anyways, to 24 ounces. First, however, the eight ounce ration was maintained for two years to provide a baseline that could be used to assess the later results. There, it's morally like repugnant. It's so nefarious. Like everything about this is bad, but you're also testing kids that are growing. And we know that the needs of like a five year old are very different than the needs of like a 10 or 12 year old. So, like, that's right. why I mean, there's no control here. It's not like you're okay. Carry on. I'm just yeah. mad now. Yeah. I mean, I've been mad. I know I was going to be mad from the beginning <laughs> time we started, but now I'm just like, Mad on like different spheres of right. anger. You can be mad on all levels. Um, so oh. what we see out of this really is that the malnourished children, honestly, I mean, I couldn't just help but keep thinking babies. Like some of these kids are as young as four. I was just going to say, I think it was four when they started taking yeah. them to residential school. So yeah, they were like yeah, preschool they were, kids. They were babies and yeah. basically just seen as a means to an end, right? We can yeah. gather human data on you know, these scientific controversies of the day. So this is like ongoing disagreements about the effectiveness of dental interventions like fluoride versus nutritional supplementation for maintaining oral health. So um, this is, this is here. Here's a new way for you to get mad. Oh, indeed. When researchers learned that Indian health services dentists had visited the Alberni St. Mary's and Cecilia Jeffries schools in the early years of the study, 
the research team quickly sent off telegrams and letters insisting that for the duration of the study, no specialized overall type of dental service should be provided to the students, such as the use of sodium fluoride, dental prophylaxis, or even urea compounds. It was argued that because dental caries and gingivitis were both important factors in assisting or in assessing nutritional status, any significant dental intervention would interfere with the results of the study. So students in these schools were specifically denied treatment that other students would have had access to during this five-year study period. Yeah, which is probably like the bare minimum absolute <sighs> garbage treatment to start with. So may as right. well just get rid of that. Right. Yeah. God forbid we we have any sort of interventions that are useful, right? So Dr. Lionel Pett, our dear friend, hero of the people, Lionel Pett, presented some of these findings to the American Institute of Nutrition in 1952. And of note, what his findings showed was no change from a number of the interventions. Keeping in mind the example of the Alberni school, these studies weren't holistic. This goes back to Jenny, what you were saying about like, there's no control group. And I understand the point of, you know, whatever their concept of a study like this wasn't to be holistic. But when you're chronically underfeeding kids who are deficient in all kinds of things, mm -hmm. it just baffles me that someone would think like, we'll just increase, we'll triple the amount of milk. And then we'll just be able to close all of these massive nutritional caps. It's just... Well, I mean, they basically had a captive audience, literally. Right. And they're like, well, this is the, they, they, they would have known that the chance to study any of this within like a westernized country was just not going to happen. Like there was no way to ethically do it. So they were going to do it the unethical way that was still, that was considered ethical at the time. At the even time. Though it's absolutely not. Abhorrent. Well, and what I think is especially of note here that as late as the year 2000, Pet continued to justify these experiments. Quote, proof of theoretical benefits or probable safety of the food to which chemicals have been specifically added require tedious physiological studies. Such studies, however, are often omitted or confined to certain animal experience rather than to humans. He added that, quote, the benefits or hazards of adding chemicals to foods cannot, in the present state of knowledge, be judged on theoretical grounds or in limited animal experimentation, but need physiological testing on humans. So why didn't he use himself in the study? <laughs> I mean, what about Dr. his pets? What about why your children? Your what about your wife? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Sure. Okay, great. Find some volunteers. Right. Who can consent? Who can actually provide consent? Right. And I mean, again, coming back to it's this was not uncommon at the time. No. I found one of the things that um, Mosby talked about in the articles that he wrote was that, you know, concurrent to this happening are the Nuremberg trials. And so you have oh, yeah. culturally this you know kind of budding recognition that some things like the experiments performed by nazi doctors yes are not okay right yeah but, and you're but it, trying people for right, it and right you're executing people right for the oh i mean it's not the the same but there's a lot of overlap for sure and what i find really interesting was at the time the view was well, that's not for us ethical doctors doing ethical studies. That's for those monsters doing horrible things to people. Yeah. Well, it's um, the other. It's othering. It's the othering. Yeah. It's yeah. the ultimate othering, right? Oh, we're yeah. not Nazis. We're just doctors trying to answer some nutritional questions. Also, 
who's paying that much attention to right. the people studying the indigenous kids at residential schools when Nuremberg trials are going on? When those trials were happening, all eyes internationally would have been there. Do you know what's really interesting is actually apparently it wasn't covered by the press at the time very much. Really? It was only in hindsight when it started, when it became the Nuremberg Code that it started to be conversation. But further huh. to your point, nobody's looking at, to this day, very few people have eyes on Indigenous kids in the foster care system, in, you know, no. yeah. questionable situations, in, you know, after generations of trauma like this so it's unsurprising that in the 40s people weren't mm -hmm. looking at this either the long-term health impacts of the starvation experienced at residential schools really cannot be overstated mosby published a follow-up study in 2017 that looked at just that the intergenerational impact of not just those who survived but their children and even their grandchildren and honestly it's even harder to read than his first paper um Quote, the long-term impact that kind of hunger during childhood leads to is a whole series of problems, starting with stunting and kids not reaching their growth potential, but leading to a higher incidence of type 2 diabetes and a whole range of problems that sort of cascades from there. There's been a tendency over time to argue there's this genetic basis in Indigenous communities for type 2 diabetes, but that ignores the fact that a lot of these health conditions are produced by Canadian institutions and Canadian government policy. Interesting. And how much attention did... Uh... Good Mosby get for his statements? I mean, 2013, 2017, I think it starts to be more of a conversation, but I mean... He would have had to work basically with zero funding and recognition, <laughs> I would imagine, for a substantial period of time. Yeah. And I mean, th thank goodness that he did, right? That we have mm -hmm. this information now and we can look at it. So, I mean, let's wrap up kind of back at the food guide. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that thing. Way to get there. Yeah. Um, let's so get we've rid had of the rules and go to the guidelines. Yeah. So we switched from the from the rules to the guide. So we've had six new additions since the 1942 um, rules. 1961 is where guide replaced rules and discarded mm -hmm. the specific direction of at least four slices of bread. So there we go. I mean, my um, kids would be down with that. <laughs> I think there are definitely days when my kids yeah. eat that. Um, 1977 was where they combined fruits and veggies into one category, um, added ranges of serving size, and the recommendation to eat one serving of potatoes was deleted. The poor and blind potato, nineteen seventy-seven. The wellness warriors <laughs> decided to make the potato a bad guy, and the sweet potato somehow better. <laughs> the nineteen eighty-two edition is important to highlight that this was the guide that served as a turning point in policy, where previous food guides had the goal of preventing nutrient deficiencies. Mm -hmm. The explicit goal of this one was to reduce chronic diseases. So again, this is something we touched on a little bit in our 1980s episode. You know, this is the conversation around low fat, around, you know, heart health, all of these pieces. Um, for the first time, it includes the moderation statement, which encouraged Canadians to limit fat, sugar, salt, and alcohol. 1992, the guide was updated to quote, embrace a total diet approach to choosing foods, end quote. So this is where we start oh. to see those massive ranges in the number of servings, like four to 12, um, as well as the, quote, other foods category for the first time. And we also see activity level explicitly included as a factor in how much to eat. And you know what? 
props to them for recognizing that like not all adults eat the same amount like have the same needs in terms of how much food they eat because right right or like depending on the day right some days you're like really hungry and some days you're not so totally bless them for you know starting to realizing that that, yeah now in all fairness they probably wanted to make those changes like years before they did because it takes so long for anything to be enacted what the other thing i loved about the 1992 guide was like i it's the one i remember like on the wall in my classroom right for sure we used to get (laughs) i think they'd send it home yeah cool Yeah. yeah um so 2007 honestly to me was just absolutely the most convoluted also the most detailed but it went from like a one page handout to a mm-hmm. six page foldout. oh no um it does include milk products being replaced with milk and alternatives but it also still includes the directive to drink skim one or two percent milk each day so hmm. you know it's weird um the current quote-unquote current edition was released in 2019 and i think in a lot of ways it manages to be kind of simple and also complicated it's just a photo of a plate no oh yeah that's when they went to the plate not the pyramid yeah yeah yeah. the triangle it's not really pyramid but anyways yeah the plate okay um but it includes whole sections of the website you know dedicated to recipes to reading labels you know to how to eat in community I do love that part about the eating with people. Yeah. that It starts to recognize that food is about, nutrition is about more than just the food that's going into your mouth. But yeah. what I find so fascinating about this is just like thinking about like who is using this? Like I can mm-hmm. see it being a guideline for institutional programs like hospitals and prisons. I can even see it as resources mm-hmm. for schools as a part of, you know, whatever they want to call a healthy Lunch program, curriculum, or... right? Yeah. But I just wonder for how much work and money is clearly put into this material like mm-hmm. who is using it outside of children i think you'd be hard pressed to find people who don't know vegetables are good for you or that we should mm-hmm. be eating lean sources of protein i think it's because i personally think it's because there has to be standards of practice and there have to be documented standards and they have to be kept up to date even though keeping things up to date is a very laborious and time consuming and bureaucratic process But I think that if you don't have any official recommendations from the government for how people are supposed to be um, eating in a way to achieve health, whatever you want to define health as, um, I think that there's just a lot of backbone parts that need those recommendations to exist. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, the handout, is anybody reading the handout? No. Do they need to make the plate thing? Probably not. But I think as far as having government recommendations for like healthful eating i'm using air quotes i think that that is what is needed so that people can eat i mean people that live in prisons should absolutely have access to nutritious food for and sure. i think unless As, you have a government if we've learned nothing from residential yeah. schools i yeah. you know and unless you have that government body saying this is needed to be to eat a healthy diet you're not going to get people in prisons eating properly. Sure. Yeah. What I what I think is in no, a lot of ways. Are they eating properly in prisons? I'm not right. saying. I mean, that that's a separate happening. I'm just saying that like if you don't have this bureaucratic recommendation that right. is up to date and in existence, you are potentially going to have even more outlying populations uh, right. not having. It also gives people who are advocating 
for better treatment of, mm. you know, remote communities of these various different populations yeah. that are being underserved, it gives them grit to be like, these are your own recommendations. Right. And these Look, aren't getting them. it didn't stop. It didn't stop Dr. Lionel. But I mean, one of the things I just keep thinking is like, so there is pages and pages, whole sections of the website dedicated to things that feel tone deaf to what the communities who actually need the support need. Like a family struggling to pay bills every month doesn't need a recipe for egg salad sandwiches to eat, quote, healthier, whatever that is. the trifold about clean drinking water? (sighs) Thank you. Right? Like, is that in there or is that just so obvious that it doesn't go well because the the government can't say that because they're not gonna give that so this is it you don't need a recipe for egg salad sandwiches you need eggs to be more affordable right like Mm -hmm. a working Mm -hmm. couple in rural none of it doesn't need to be told that half their plate should be veggies when they literally can't buy vegetables inside their communities right yeah I think, I think it's a hangover, too, from before we had a digital era where people, that's how information was disseminated, was like handouts through school, handouts through the library or the community center. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just a, I think sometimes we think our government is more like crafty and up to date than they are. And it's like, no, I bet you they just are like, we got to print off the new handouts for school. And the schools are like, fuck, we send emails we to the don't, parents. We don't need, nobody wants this. And well, if someone's looking for a healthy diet, they're like literally scrolling on Pinterest or Instagram or TikTok <laughs> for like something that they align with and they don't. Or they yeah. can afford, right? Like, yes. Yeah. And even if they can't afford it, how many? I know a lot of middle-class humans and none of them are seeking dietary advice from the food guide. <laughs> None of them. From from Canada.gc.ca. Nope. nope. Yeah. I think use a you dietitian, know, they'll do something fancy, none of which with money and access and privilege is the government's recommendations. Yeah. And even if we take those pieces away, I think when, you know, if we're looking at communities that don't have that same level of money and access and privilege, yeah. I I just fail to see how like a really robust Canada's food guide.com is is doing that. I think yeah. like just They're like seeing it. Right. Like seeing residential schools as opportunities to test nutritional theories rather than actually feeding the children. I can't help yeah. but think that this is just missing the mark. I mean, in a less sinister way, hopefully, but the long-term impacts are still the same. One in mm-hmm. three food bank users here in Canada are children. And it mm-hmm. feels like these resources would be better spent in making these foods more accessible and affordable mm-hmm. rather than just telling us what they are. Right. And it certainly doesn't do anything for trust within government structures you know, within indigenous communities. Yeah. Telling people what they're supposed to eat doesn't, to your point, give them access or clean freaking drinking water. Right. Choose water. All they, all the food guides say, choose water. Hmm. Great. Sure. Great. If you can. If you, can, if you have the privilege and the access to choose water. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, not quite as fun as the wine and eggs diet, but an important part of our history and something important to think about as we're thinking about things like the food guide and nutritional recommendations, particularly here in Canada. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a bleak origin story. And it's just, I don't know, there's really no way to make it okay or better. It's just I guess one of those things where knowledge is power and the more you learn, the more you can do better when you've got that information. 
Yeah. Um, I'm also going to include in the show notes a link to the Residential School Survivors Fund. If you feel um, like you have the privilege and the access to donate, this is a great time to do so. And thanks for listening. And if you need to get an orange shirt, it's too late by the time you're listening to this. But for next year, um, if you look up with local vendors, there's all, especially in the Vancouver area, there's tons of local indigenous um, creators who make orange shirts that, so you're not only you're purchasing from an indigenous person, you're purchasing from a small business. You're actually, the money's going where it's supposed to go. Yeah. Please, please support your local indigenous creators, especially when it comes to something like orange shirt day. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for listening to We really appreciate your support and, if you could do us a good favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.